Would you please join with me in the reading of God's holy word found in page nine of your bulletins. Hear these words from Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. And they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, for we know in your word we find truth, we find light, we find life. Lord, would you speak clearly to us? Lord, I pray that our hearts would be soft to hear your word. Lord, I pray that our eyes would be opened to understanding what the spirit would reveal to us in these next few moments. Lord, I pray that your word would fall on good ground, good soil that we would hear and that we would obey and respond with loving faithfulness to you, God. So Lord, I pray that you would communicate, speak clearly through me, your vessel, and that you would be enthroned in the remainder of our time here. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Erin Rose. I am the worship, oh, not worship, I'm the pastoral intern here. And I almost said East End Fellowship, help me this morning. I'm the pastoral intern here at Third Church. I'll be here through May, and I'm really glad to be uh, with you guys. It's been a joy these past few months, uh, getting to spend some time with you all. You guys have been literally the best to me. So I'm gonna go ahead and get started because I have a lot of text. I went long in the first service. I will probably go long today. I mean, in the second service. Okay, so we've been in a sermon series. You guys know if you've been to third in the past several weeks that we've been in a sermon series called Let Heaven and Nature Sing. And we've been going through the hymns of Christmas, digging deep into like the wonderful 
depths of the theology that are represented in their lyrics. And sometimes those hymns can become mundane. Sometimes we just get used to hearing them over and over. So we decided, hey, listen, let's dig deep for these gems, for this gold that's in these hymns. So Corey allowed me to choose the hymn that I wanted to speak on. And I chose, Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming. Now, let me tell y'all something. I did not grow up singing this hymn. I don't know why I chose it. It has given me the business this week. I'm gonna preach it, but it has given me the business. I, did, I first heard this song like three years ago. It was uh, an artist, a group called The Brilliance released an Advent EP. And this was, I think the first track on the EP and I was overcome with how beautiful it is. Also, my last name is Rose. And so I just was like, this is beautiful. I'm, I'm ever blooming just like Jesus Christ. And I just, but for real, the lyrics and the melody really stuck with me and I loved it. And so I'm gonna try to do it justice today. And when I was preparing for this sermon, I, um, I saw that the content for the lyrics came largely from Isaiah chapter 11, which is what we just read. And as I was reading through Isaiah chapter 11, and we're focusing just on the uh, 10 verses. It, Isaiah describes Jesus in verse 1 as a shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse and as the root of Jesse. So Jesus is described as both stem and root. Jesus is described as both offspring and source. And how can this be? And I mean, I think if we've grown up in church, we spend a lot of time in church, it, it can become commonplace for us to hear things like that. Like Jesus is one thing, but also the opposite. But we're gonna spend some time digging into the paradoxical nature of Jesus Christ that rep that's represented in Isaiah 11, but also in Loharo's air blooming. Because how can one person be both source and offspring? How can this be possible? And if it is possible, what does it mean for the world? So paradoxes are interesting to me. I love them because my mind gets wrapped around them and I just start considering the impossibility of their impossibility. So I have an example for y'all today. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the sermon, but I thought it might be fun. So if we could put up this, yeah. So, this is a paradox called the card paradox. You may have heard of it before. And I did it for our purposes today. So statement A says, the statement on the next slide is true. Statement B says, the statement on the previous slide is false. Now, in order for any level of truth to be assigned to either A or B, a paradox presents itself. Because if A is true, then B has to be true as well. But if B is true, then A must be false. And then if A is false, then B is false. And then round and round and round and round and round we go. And I just get so excited about the futility of my own thinking that I just, I love it. Paradoxes blow my mind. I'm sure they blow yours too. And so what I'm asking the spirit to do is that the spirit would blow our minds about the paradoxical nature of our God today. So I'm gonna talk about three things that I found in Isaiah chapter 11. One, the meek and lowly Jesus. Two, 
the high and holy Jesus, huh? And three, the kingdom of Jesus. I'm just going to jump right in. So our text is the first 10 verses of the 11th chapter of Isaiah, but we have to do a little bit of contextual exploring to really understand the imagery that's being used here. So in verse, oh, I would also love it if you guys could keep open to page nine in your bulletin where the text is, because I'm going to be referencing that every now and again. And I would love if you can just lay your eyes on the place that I'm talking about. So if, so in verse 11, it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. So without context, this statement can be kind of unusual. Why is Isaiah using this imagery of a stump? Well, in chapter 10, the prophet Isaiah is giving a message of consolation to the people of Israel that are experiencing some oppression, kind of. It's oppression that's a result of their own bad behavior. Here's some background. The people of Israel were chosen to be holy unto God. They were God's chosen people. They were called to be a light to the nations. They were to represent on earth what living in the kingdom of God was actually like. And so in order for them to do that successfully, since these people had no idea what right from wrong was, they didn't know what up from down was, God set up a covenant with this people that provided certain guidelines for Israel to follow. There were rules, there were expectations, there were statutes. Whatever you want to call it, it was clear what was expected of them. And if they followed these rules, if they followed these guidelines, if they followed these statutes, they could expect prosperity, blessing, fruitfulness. But if they disobeyed, they could expect to be judged. And let me tell you something. What I just said is pretty reductive of the story of God in Israel but we can have a conversation after church later if you want to dig more deeply into it. But that's the deal that was set up. When Israel disobeyed commandments about worshiping false gods or taking on the culture of nations that were outside the family of God, they reaped consequences. Israel would often get in bed with other nations and make deals, covenants, promises that were outside what God allowed. They would go to foreign nations and say, hey, listen, let's make a deal. I'll make a deal with you if you make a deal with me. And oftentimes there would be deals, there would be covenants, there would be agreements that were outside what God wanted for his people. They would be outside of God's best for them. But Israel would go their own way and climb right into bed with these other nations. And the consequences of these disobediences were often dire. Did y'all hear that? Did it go out? Is it going out? I'm going to change my mic. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> the I'm like, the devil is at work. Just joking. The consequences of those disobediences were often dire because, look, these outside nations were often bigger. They had more military power. They had more strength. They had more people. And they would make these promises with Israel knowing that they could take advantage of them later. And that's what they would do. So Israel would make these bad deals. They would go after foreign gods. They would make these awful treatises and promises and covenants with these other nations. And the result would be the nation would be like, gotcha. 
We're coming in and we're gonna put your whole capital under siege. Gotcha, we're taking you away from your homeland. We're gonna conquer you. So that's the setting that Israel is in. They've been disobedient and the nations are coming and taking advantage of them, just as God said would happen. So at this point, God is saying that Israel's oppression, humiliation, and destruction would not last forever. In fact, the nations that had dealt so harshly with them would be judged themselves, and that those nations would be the ones that would be cut down. But before that, Israel itself would be all demolished. So in the previous chapters, you have all these uh, images of nations being described as trees that God was going to cut down for uh, coming against the people of of Israel. But God is saying, but look, y'all was a tree too, and your disobedience caused you to be cut down. So that brings us to chapter 11 and verse 1. And it says, out of the stump of Jesse, a shoot will come up. And the stump of Jesse is an interesting phrase because when you think about it, Jesse is King David's father. So I'm hoping that King David is a familiar Bible character for 75% of people in here. When you think about Israel at its greatest, at its height, King David is on the throne. He's out here slaying giants. He's conquering kingdoms. He's um, slaying his tens of thousands that would come against the people of Israel. He has his son Solomon who erects this beautiful temple unto the Lord. That line is the line from which Jesus will come, but this chapter does not describe out of the line of David, a shoot will spring up. It says out of the stump of Jesse. So that shows you how David's line has been cut off at the knees, even below the knees. They've been brought low because of their disobedience, and they didn't even want to put David's name next to that line. They just were like, you know what? We're so humble, we can't even put King David's name next to this. We're the stump of Jesse. We're going to put his uh, next to nobody's daddy's name on the stump. And so it appears where there should have been a towering sequoia, For all the world to see, it appears that there is nothing but a stump. And it appears that the promise of God was worthless. The promises that God made to David about his line lasting forever and ever and ever in times of triumph and victory are probably ringing hollow in the ears of God's people. It's the stump of Jesse. And the promise wasn't made to Jesse that his line will last forever. The promise was made to David, but this just shows how low they've gotten. And don't miss what's happening here. Just like what we see here in chapter 11, we can probably see in our own lives, in our own homes, in our own world, there are things that may not line up with the promises of God. What at one time felt sure and stable has become at best unsure, unstable, or uncertain, and at worst, completely destroyed. We pray for healing and it doesn't come. We pray for the restoration of a marriage, but it doesn't come. We pray to win the mega millions and that doesn't come either. Can you imagine the people of God hearing these words of Isaiah? how they must have felt, desolation was all around them. How in the world would this work? How in the world would, from the stump of Jesse, how in the world would salvation come? 
Because we had once been a kingdom where we were defeating our enemies left and right. We were building temples and now we've been cut down and almost cut off because of our own disobedience, because of our own choices. And instead of being the light to the nations that they were called to be, First Kings describes them, and in many other places in scripture, it describes the people of Israel as being a laughing stock of the nations. Isn't it crazy how our own sin and our own disobedience brings us low, even in the eyes of our enemies, and they begin to laugh and point at us and say, well, where is your God? I thought he was mighty and powerful. I have a lighthearted example of being brought low in my own life. I um, grew up, and my parents gave me whoopings, okay? Now, it was, I was born in the 80s, raised in the 90s. It's kind of like the Wild West out there. Like, we just, you know, parents are doing things that parents don't really do nowadays. For example, I used to um, go and play outside by myself, unsupervised, all the time. And I think back on that, and I just am like, what were they thinking? But that's just how it was. It was the 90s. We were just doing whatever. So... Um, my parents gave me whoopings when I disobeyed. So I had the expectation that when my, when my parents, when my mother gave me a direction, I was to follow it to the nth degree. No matter what she said, just go and do it. And I knew that I wasn't supposed to give no back talk. I was just supposed to obey. Now, this one particular day, I, I feel like the spirit of pride and arrogance rose up within me to an unprecedented level. I mean, rose up within me. I was reading a book. I feel like it was a Goosebumps book. It was, I, I don't know why that detail is sticking out, but I just, I just now have an aversion to Goosebumps. I, my mom said, okay, Aaron, it's time for you to go take your shower. And I was in the middle of reading, and it must have been a good part. And I said, I'm not getting ready to take no shower right now. My mother said, oh no. Needless to say, I was brought low in that moment. I was humbled in a way that I would never have chosen to be humbled. My parents nipped that in the bud. And much like Israel, being humbled by the mighty hand of God, I was humbled by the mighty hand of Margaret Rose in that day. The spirit of pride that I was operating in just a few moments earlier had left me completely and I humbly went and took showers whenever I was told to take showers from that day forward. And so if I was humbled by one small whooping, how much more would an entire kingdom be humbled by the mighty hand of the living God? And this is how Jesus chose to come into the world. Jesus didn't choose to come to the world uh, through a kingdom that was already established and thriving and living its best life, where they were like making it rain on all of its citizens. Everybody, you know, you get a car and you get a car, you get a Jesus didn't come through that. Jesus came through the stump of Jesse. He still fulfilled the promise that the Messiah would be of the line of David, but he came at a time when the line of King David was less significant than the line for the restroom after church service. This is our meek and lowly Jesus. He's the shoot coming out from the stump of Jesse. He accepted the humble nature of a man. Our meek and lowly Jesus came to seek, came to save, came to serve, and came to suffer. 
Philippians 2 says of Jesus, who being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant made in human likeness, and he humbled himself even to the point of death. If we look back at the lyrics of Lohauer Rose, we have this beautiful imagery in verse one of a tender stem springing up. Now, Jonathan, could you put up the picture of the stump of Jesse? Well, it's not the stump of Jesse, it's just a normal stump. <laughs> the stump of Jesse, that's a metaphor. So this is a stump with a spring shooting up from it. And I mean, its very appearance is fragile. When you look at it, it's almost absurd. What in the world could that green shoot do? There was once a mighty tree standing. You can see the remnants of what used to be, of what could have been. But now all you see left is what's been cut down in a single shoot. But there's something about the shoot's fragility, something about its newness that sparks a little hope. And maybe, just maybe, there can be life where there's been death for so long. And maybe, just maybe, the meek and lowly Jesus, our meek and lowly Jesus, sprung up, chose to be a tender shoot in the midst of death and darkness, amid the cold of winter. And we see evidence of Jesus' meek and lowly nature. First of all, in Matthew chapter 11, he identifies, self-identifies as meek and lowly. He says, take my yoke on you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. But as we go on in scripture, we see a meek and lowly Jesus who lived an ordinary life, even though he was God, a very God. We see a meek and lowly Jesus who saw women, who spoke to women, who listened to women. We see a meek and lowly Jesus who had time to sit down and eat with his disciples. He had time to sit down and eat with the crowds. We see a meek and lowly Jesus who healed everyone who asked. We see a meek and lowly Jesus who came expressly to bind up the brokenhearted and to set captives free. We see a meek and lowly Jesus who lived a life of complete obedience to the Father so much that his will was lost in that of the fathers. We see a meek and lowly Jesus who humbled himself to the point that he went and got baptized. We see a meek and lowly Jesus that got hungry, that got tired, that got sad, that got angry. We see a meek and lowly Jesus that wept on behalf of his people. We see a meek and lowly Jesus that not only did he care for the poor, but he advocated for the poor. We see a meek and lowly Jesus that got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. We see a meek and lowly Jesus that obeyed his mama. We see a meek and lowly Jesus that had conversations with people. We see a meek and lowly Jesus that said, suffer the little children to come to me because the kingdom of God belongs to those that are like them. See, Jesus has a choice. Jesus had a choice. He could have chosen to be born in the world with a silver spoon in his mouth and the wind to his back, but he did not. Jesus, our meek and lowly Jesus, chose to be born to an unwed, 
teenage mother in humble conditions, and that is our meek and lowly Jesus, the tender shoot that comes up from a stump of desolation. That is our God. So not only is our Jesus meek and lowly, he didn't leave it there. Our Jesus is high and holy as well. Remember, we're talking about our paradoxical Jesus. Jesus, who was at once man and God, is also simultaneously meek and lowly and high and holy. If we look at verse 3 of chapter 11, we see the words, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. And let's stop right there. What you mean you don't judge by what you see with your eyes or what you hear with, you, with your ears? Are you judging by what you smell with your nose? I mean, these are questions that we have. No, Jesus, this is a hint at the divine nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a hint of the divine nature of the humble shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse. There's something about this promised Messiah that is wholly different than you or me could ever imagine. That's wholly different than you and me ourselves. You see, in these natural bodies, we mostly go by what we see and what we hear. If it looks right and the logic of it is sound, we go with it. But this judge... He discerns by something greater. Earlier in the chapter, it says that the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The judgment coming from this high and holy one is a greater judgment than any judge of this world could ever give goes on to say in verse 4 that he will judge the needy with righteousness and he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Now this is more like the conquering king that I'm sure Israel was expecting. Even the words of his mouth will be like a strike to the earth. His breath will knock out the wicked, the evildoer the oppressor, this image of the righteous judge that champions the poor and oppressed is powerful. Only the most holy, only the most exalted would be able to judge and lead that way. And how do I know this? I know this because honestly, when I look at the earth today, it seems like the wicked and oppressive are becoming more and more powerful and the needy and the poor are becoming needier and poorer. And the spirit of this world is set up against the needy and the poor. It's set up against those who are in need, and it champions those who would oppress them. And not one of us in our own power can do anything to combat it. It's too big for us. But the picture we have here in Isaiah chapter 11 is of a righteous judge who, with just the words of his mouth, is able to shake earth to its core and cause the wicked to flee. So just a few moments ago, I read a passage from Philippians chapter 2, and I talked about how Jesus was so humble that he obeyed every single thing that the Father said. He humbled himself. He emptied himself of his own glory to limit himself in, a, in the body of a human. But it doesn't end there. Let's pick up where, where I left off. It says in Philippians chapter 2 that God exalted Jesus to the highest place. 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our high and holy Jesus. Our high and holy Jesus is girded with faithfulness and righteousness. There is none higher. There is none more exalted. There is none greater. There is none holier. There is none more powerful. There is no judge more qualified. There is no arbiter that decides with greater justice. Only our high and holy Jesus, who is empowered by the Spirit of God and given full authority from the Father, and he is judged of both the living and the dead. That is our high and holy Jesus. We see this Jesus in Scripture. We see this high and holy Jesus teaching with authority in the temple. We see this high and holy Jesus empowering his disciples. We see this high and holy Jesus calming the raging seas. We see this high and holy Jesus who is eternally exalted and he is seated on the throne forever and ever and ever. And, and honestly, from me to him, be glory and honor, dominion and power forever. That is our high and holy Jesus. And so we are called and invited to live as citizens of this king, of the kingdom of this Jesus, of this high, holy, meek, and lowly Jesus. And that kingdom looks very different than anything we've ever known. Verses six through nine describe a utopian world, the world governed by our meek, lowly, high, holy Jesus. The wolf is living with the lamb. The leopard is lying down with the goat and the calf and the lion and the yearling are hanging out together and there's a little child leading them all. The cow is eating with the bear and they're young. Their babies will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And what's interesting to me is that the reign of Jesus doesn't just affect you and me. It affects the ecology of the entire world. Even plants, animals, everything have, has got to bow, has got to align itself with the greatness and the superiority of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. But there's something to learn from this ecology lesson. Do you see how the predators have lost their predatory nature? In the ecology of the kingdom of God, those that would have been leading the attack on weaker vessels have now seemingly taken on the nature of their meeker, milder counterparts. This reminds me of earlier in the chapter when we see our high and holy Jesus giving decisions for the poor of the earth and slaying the wicked with the breath of his lips. And there's something about the kingdom of God that frees the oppressor from oppressing and the oppressed from oppression. I don't want us to miss this. Because Isaiah chapter 11 is about the oppressed being set free, but there's something about the nature of our paradoxical Jesus Christ that allows room for the oppressed to be set free, but also for the oppressor to be set free as well. Everybody is invited to the master's table. Everybody's invited to come and dine. Everybody's invited to come and sit and be with Jesus and we're all made equal. We're all made new. Deliverance has come for both oppressed and oppressor. Because look, even in the kingdom of God, the weaker animals, the lamb, the goat, the calf, the ox, they're hanging out with the top of the food chain. 
They've lost their need to self-protect. They've lost the desire to flee out of self-preservation. They know they're no longer in danger. Why is that? In verse 9, it says it's because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And let's zoom that out because there's significance for us here, not just for the animal kingdom. I think some of us in here might greatly identify with the wolf, with the, with the lion, with the leopard, at the very top of the food chain. Ruthless, predatory, we'll stop at nothing to get what we want. We prey on the weak, and that can take form in various different ways. It can take form in relationships, in business, in our families, in our churches. And there might be some of us in here that identify with the lamb, the calf, the cow, weak, bottom of the food chain, fearful, living in fear of and in anger with the strong. We're resentful that they have all the power. We're mad and we're bitter that they have all the resources, that they get what we want. We also avoid them, afraid of being taken advantage of. We can grow distrusting and behave in ways that serve our own interests to protect ourselves. And how can these two groups coexist? How can these two groups dwell together when one is a meal and the other is licking its lips saying, bon appetit? Do you see yourself in one group or the other? I see myself in both depending on the setting. The good news is this. In the kingdom of God, all of us are reborn. The weak have become strong. The poor have become rich. The predator has rested from his striving. Its hunger has been satisfied. We are all new creations, we're new creatures. We have new hearts, new mindsets, new motivations. We can all coexist and we are called to. Because in the kingdom of God, we have a righteous judge. We are at rest and at peace with God and with each other. Now, how do I know this to be true? Ephesians chapter two says that groups that are by nature at opposition with each other have been brought close and reconciled through our King Jesus's death on the cross. And that death on the cross put to death any hostility that would keep us apart from each other. And just like the utopian view we see in Isaiah 11 of predator and prey existing peacefully together and that glorifies the kingdom of God, our peaceful coexistence as spiritual brothers and sisters, glorifies the kingdom of God and the earth, not only in the earth, but beyond. Ephesians chapter 3 says that God's intent was that this newly created group of folks known as the church would, be the, would testify of the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities, even in the heavenly realms. So just like the wolf and the lamb, just like the leopard and the calf, we are made new and it may not make sense. It may not look right from the outside looking in. It may not make sense for us to love each other as deeply as we do, to sacrifice for each other as deeply as we do because we're too different. We were once at odds with each other. How can this be? 
But this is how the world knows that we belong to God, by how we love each other, by how we dwell in unity. Just as the Father and the Son are eternally existing in perfect unity, we represent our God when we dwell in unity as well. We were once on the outs with each other, but because of Jesus, we're closer than family. We've both been reconciled to God. In verse 3 of Lohauer Rose, Air Blooming, you can find that on, on page 11 of your bulletin. It says, this flower whose fragrance tender with sweetness fills the air, dispels with glorious splendor the darkness everywhere. And I begin to think about that. I begin to think about, okay, this rose is blooming forever. The fragrance of this rose is dispelling the darkness, powerful rose, powerful scent. What does that mean? How is this possible? So allow me to make a suggestion on this morning. The rose, that, which is Jesus Christ, is ever blooming through us, his church. We are the way in which the the fragrance of Christ gets known throughout all of the world. We are the way that the fragrance of Christ dispels the darkness and the gloom everywhere. When we are like our paradoxical Jesus, when we are like our Savior King, when we are like our suffering servant Jesus, when we are like our high priest Jesus, we become that fragrance of, the, of that rose. There were people, when they smell it, they are literally, when they put their eyes on Jesus finally, they're like, man, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for. There's a song that I grew up singing when I was a kid. It says, to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, how I long to be like him, so meek and lowly, so high and holy, how I long to be like him. And what I see in this paradoxical nature of Jesus, that Jesus is both lion, the, the worthy lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus is also the roaring lion of Judah coming to our defense. Jesus is at once a suffering servant and a righteous king. Jesus is at once the best gift that we'll ever get in our lives, but he also asks that we give up everything to follow him. So just if we are acting like our paradoxical, amazing, wonderful Jesus, we too are going to be existing in a paradoxical existence. We are at once co-heirs with Jesus, inher inheritors of the glorious splendors of eternity and righteousness and goodness, but we are also called to be co-laborers with him. We inherit of no goodness of our own, but we are also at work with Jesus in the world. In order to gain our life, we have to be willing to lose it. And it's my prayer today that we would show forth the glorious wisdom of God in the earth, that we would see ourselves as we truly are, the glorious inheritance of God, the sweet and wonderful and beautiful fragrance of Jesus in the world. And that when people literally, that when we are loving each other and we're loving the world so well, people will know that we belong to Jesus because of it. Would we shine our light so brightly? Would we reflect our elder brother Jesus so well? There may be some in here that are saying, listen, this is brand new to me. 
I've never, I, I feel like I've not been a part of this. I want to be a part of it. Jesus is inviting you to come and dine as well. Jesus is inviting you to come to his table. Come and feast. Come and be satisfied. Whatever you're hungering for, whatever you're thirsting for, Jesus is the only one that will ever truly satisfy. And he's waiting with open arms for you. There are some of us in here who are seated at the master's table. We've pulled up a chair. We're enjoying the wonderful delights of God's fullness. But there are times in our lives when we are acting more like the wolf of our previous nature or the goat of our previous nature. We're operating in oppression or we're operating in fear. My prayer tonight is that those of us who are identifying that way would allow the spirit to make us over, that we will be made new in the presence of God, and that the spirit would renew us and make us more like our elder brother, Jesus Christ. I just want to say the lyrics of Loha Rose. We're actually going to sing them in a second. But verse 3, it says, This flower who fragrance tender with sweetness fills the air. Dispels with glorious splendor the darkness everywhere. True man, yet very God. From sin and death he saves us and lightens every load. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your presence here. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We thank you that we've been invited to be citizens of the kingdom of God. We thank you that you make us new. We thank you that you make us holy. We thank you that you make us righteous. Of no goodness of our own, we could not ever earn that. But we're also grateful that you call us to work alongside of you. Lord, would, you be, would our hearts be willing to be made new? Would our hearts be willing to be refreshed in your presence, God? Would you make your presence that much more tangible for us? You're forever exalted, you're forever glorified, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.